It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. If you are someone who is trying to change the way that you're thinking, because you know that you're thinking is not really serving you as well as it could. Just perk your ears up because this show today is going to really address that. Recent research shows that humans tally more than 6,000 thoughts each day. Those thousands of thoughts are, in, are an irrefutable consequence of our society's obsessive need to be busy and distracted. Our obsessive mental planning, rehashing, cataloging, um, thoughts that have been programmed in us keeps us from uncovering more heightened awareness in which we can participate in life as grounded, sensitive human beings. Today's special guest, Ora Nadrich, is a pioneering mindfulness expert, international keynote speaker and coach, and the founder and president of the Institute for Transformational Thinking. A sought-after expert in the fields of mindfulness, transformational thinking, and self-discovery, she is the author of Says Who? How One Simple Question Can Change the Way You Think Forever. Live True, a mindfulness guide to authenticity named one of the 100 best mindfulness books of all time by Book Authority, and her very new book, which we're going to really be focused on today, Mindfulness and Mysticism, Connecting Present Moment Awareness with Higher States of Consciousness. Good morning, Aura, and welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Hi, Randy. Good morning to you, and thank you so much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure. Um, I love this topic. I... um, I think that it's a topic that really will speak well to my listeners today, and um, I'm not going to go into why, but they will see as we go along. So, <laughs> um, okay. So, how do you define mindfulness? Mindfulness, in its most simple definition, and not in any way to dumb it down, but it really is a simple definition, very straightforward definition. It's the practicing of it that is where the work is done and that is the practice of being in the present moment or being in the present moment with total awareness that is the essence of the mindfulness practice and you say that the more we can trigger neurotransmitters consciously or deliberately the the more we can feel great um, with doing this absolutely yes Yes, you know, I do say in the book that our brains mimic a medicine chest, basically, in that we have all of these natural, you know, chemicals in the brain that can create many different moods, obviously, and that the more we are present and the more we are cognizant of the thoughts that we hold in our mind 
we can really see the effect that it has on our chemicals, our mental chemicals, our brain chemicals. And that's when we can experience things, which is what I really present in the book, that we can feel the good, the feel-good chemicals, if you will, when our thoughts are more supportive and positive. So you say, and, and this is obvious, and it was actually the next question I was going to ask you, but I see it's in your book. We don't usually come to the present moment free of thoughts and concerns. Um, and I'm think, everybody's probably thinking that. You say, and we don't travel light. As a matter of fact, we pack more than we need no matter where we go. And I'm talking about mental baggage that's um, from, directly from your book. Yeah. So how do we deal with that? Well, where mindfulness comes into play with the, that particular thing that you're citing in the book is having an awareness. Because what mindfulness does is it makes us aware of the thoughts that we are having or making us aware of how busy our mind is or making us aware of, again, what the book says, the mental baggage that we carry with us wherever we go. When we, it's like putting a light on it. When we are cognizant of the activity of the mind, we can then work with our thoughts accordingly. So mindfulness is a great foundation for that in that it really strengthens our awareness. And by being more aware, we become more aware of, again, things like the thoughts that are going through our head. And as you cited, thousands and thousands of thoughts occupy our mind daily. And the thoughts that oftentimes get our attention are those negative and or fear-based thoughts. So once we become aware of them, rather than to push them away or deny them, we can work with them. And we can then really begin to actively work with you know, what I call curating a mind that basically has healthy, productive, life-affirming thoughts as opposed to allowing for thoughts that are ultimately negative and can be destructive. And you liken this to um, having an ant invasion <laughs> in your house. <laughs> and maybe yes. you can use that analogy so that people can understand that. Well, I, I just go straight into that analogy in the first chapter, Behold, mis- Behold um, Mindfulness, you know, because I really want people to understand that, like, when you are in the throes of something like an ant infestation, and I think everybody at some point has had ants in their home, and it just seems like it's a never-ending thing. You look away, and it's they've multiplied, you know, in droves. And, you know, you could be telling yourself all sorts of things like, you know, oh, my God, and, you know, all the, all the inner chatter that goes on. But, you know, worrying about them or all the things that you may be thinking in the moment isn't going to help fix that problem. And, you know, if you think about that ants just continue to come in, that's really a good metaphor for our thoughts. You know, there's another thought, and then there's another thought, and oh, now here's another annoying thought, and here's a negative thought. And just when you think you're making headway, you know, or again, if you just look at the visual of what that connotes with the ant infestation, you've got to deal with it, each and every one of those ants. Each and every one of our thoughts can be like pesky, incessant, annoying you know, a nuisance, if you will, just like an ant infestation. So I really wanted to give people a sense of how, you know, annoying and monotonous our thoughts can be. It is. It's a great analogy, and it really, really does um, drive the, the point home. 
So are we supposed to accept the thoughts that we're having? Are we supposed to argue with the thoughts we're having or just sort of move them aside? Well, definitely not move them aside. Do you know, what I say in in my first book, Says Who, um, is that we really do want to, you know, be the master and the the creator, if you will, of our inner dialogue. And we also want to be with our thoughts, all of them, not just the pretty ones, I say. So it's very important to acknowledge a thought that seems to be very present in the mind, you know, and by really focusing on it with mindful acceptance, if you will. Oh, I have a thought that is really telling me that I'm not good enough, you know, and it's really trying to to bring me down. It's really trying to undermine me. It's really trying to just make me really doubt myself or feel insecure. And if you could say that with equanimity, you know, and what I say observation, non-reactivity, you become really so much more familiar with the inner dialogue of the mind, which, again, going back to what you said, we have thousands and thousands of thoughts daily, but the ones that get our attention are oftentimes the negative and fear-based thoughts. When we become aware of a thought, we can work with it readily because what I say about the thoughts that we have, if we don't address them, you know, and don't tend to the thoughts that occupy the mind, we then can be at the effect of them. And not only that, we can suddenly start to suffer the what I call the side effects or the symptoms of a thought. And what I mean by that is that our thoughts can suddenly create these emotions which makes us feel anxious or fearful you know, or depressed. So you don't want to get to that point when you acknowledge the thoughts that you have the encouragement that I want to tell people is that by acknowledging our thoughts, whatever they may be, negative, fearful, you know, dark, whatever that is for you, having an awareness that you're thinking that thought, boom, you can begin working with it. And that's important because we need to work with the thoughts that cause us the most suffering, you know, or else we just are in a constant state of suffering at the effect of that particular thought. So, you know, the good news is that we can transform those thoughts we can change those thoughts into something more positive and more productive and more constructive you know we have the ability to change our thoughts isn't that great (laughs) it is great it is great and um yeah we're you know we're talking a little bit about neuroplasticity where you know we can change the way our brain works which is really an amazing thing to know. What does it mean to be, in um, Chapter 3, you talk about awakening. And so we hear this word a lot. We hear, you know, the news talking about the woke generation and this and that. But what is it, to me, that, that really doesn't make any sense. But what does it mean to be effectively be awake? I'm glad you said that because when I wrote Mindfulness and Mysticism, mm-hmm. the word woke, which is being used ad nauseum today. Mm-hmm. And I, it's being used, I think, more in a politicized way, if you will. Yeah. I really, you know, I have to say I, I want to talk about that because it's, it's really, in a way, a misuse of being awake, in my opinion. And I feel that it's a very presumptuous way to say, oh, you're so woke. Well, what does that really mean? When you're awake, you're, you're an aware human being. 
you're aware, you're mindful, you're benevolent, you're kind, you're conscious. And this it's taken on this sort of like slang kind of tone, if you will, like, oh, I'm so woke. Well, what is that? <laughs> How woke are you? Are you woke enough to know that maybe you're really not that woke? You know, and I say that in mindfulness and mysticism. I say, you know, I feel that it's this very um, – kind of it diminishes the whole notion of what it means to really be conscious and really be awake and i think that for anybody that's pounding on their chest that they're so woke i'd like to know what they're so woke about <laughs> so what is it really so so it's to another be a- word for awake you know but i right. think again it's been watered down and in my opinion because i value the whole concept of being awake, and I speak about it extensively in my books. You know, it takes work to be awake. It takes a conscious effort to be an awake human being, and this is where mindfulness comes into play. This takes practice. It takes day in and day out practice to be a more aware human being, and when you're a more aware human being, you are more awake, meaning you're awake at, you know, you're in the driver's seat, and you're awake to so many things about your actions, about your behaviors, about your intentions, about your purpose. And just to throw that word out so, you know, I think rather carelessly or very manipulatively, like, you know, this whole woke thing concept, I think it diminishes the whole true meaning of what it means to be an awake human being. I so agree. And every time I hear them say that on the news, I cringe. <laughs> Me too. Thank you, Randy. That's a perfect description. I cringe too because I feel it's taking something that is so valuable and it's really diminishing it. Right. So all these people who really are not awoken can say no. that they are. They claim it's, that well, they it's are. An arrogant, it's an arrogant, presumptuous attitude, if you will, mm-hmm. about like, you know, this self-proclaimed wokeness. And I'd like to ask a person who declares that about themselves, tell me exactly what's woke about you. Tell me in the areas of which yeah. you are awake. I'd love to hear what they say. Like, what's mm. the hard work they're doing? I don't have a problem if someone uses the word woke. But I would like for them to define what being awake means to them. Very interesting question to ask somebody who can arrogantly just say that and, you know, just use its word like it's supposed to be some, you know, self-evident meaning. And I don't subscribe to that at all. I feel that it's, as, as all my books really show, it takes work to be awake. You're right. It really, really does. And that's why there's so many pages to this book, because there's so many aspects. <laughs> I really this. take a deep dive. I take a deep dive, yes, for sure. You do. You know, um, and I'm glad, and, and I'm so glad you brought up the woke thing without belaboring it, because, like I said, I wrote that book a couple of years ago before this whole woke phenomenon just took over. And I, now I look at that and I think, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh gosh. Well, we can't really listen to the news anyway because it's nothing no. but nonsense. Um, in chapter five, your chapter five is about divine thought illumination. So, what is divine thought illumination? You know, divine thought illumination really is, you know, and this is, goes back way in time. Whether you, you know, you take that whole notion in a more religious context or a, you know, uh, biblical context or a theosophical context or philosophical, 
the thoughts that we hold in our mind, what are those thoughts? Going back to being aware, being cognizant of the thoughts that we have. When we keep our thoughts really present, light-filled, if you will, do you know, conscious, um, it, I really do draw the difference between thoughts of light versus thoughts of darkness. Now, everybody's got their own shadow, meaning the aspects of their selves that they may not like or love, but I think we have to integrate all of the thoughts that we have and all the aspects of who we are. So thought, divine thought illumination really gives you a sense that when you have thoughts that are positive, that are more light-bearing, if you will, you really keep your, your, you keep your mind illumined. And I think that's extremely valuable and important, especially today. We're in a very challenging time on the planet. I think we're in the midst of a tremendous spiritual shift. And I think that each and every one of us needs to take responsibility for the thoughts that we have. Do you know, what are the thoughts that I have? What is the energy that I'm putting out into the universe? You know, is it positive? Is it loving? Are they full of light or are they full of, you know, are they more dark? Are they about, you know, um, negativity or hate or, you know, the things that really can occupy the mind, judgment, prejudice? They're, they're the types of thoughts that can occupy our mind that are not illumined. And I think it's really important to kind of take inventory of the thoughts that we hold in our mind, you know, and not to judge ourselves harshly because, like I said, we all have a multitude of thoughts in our minds daily. What we want to get good at is what I say, what are the, the productive thoughts, you know, what are the intelligent thoughts, what are the useful thoughts that we have versus thoughts that are useless, and that occupy our mind and do nothing for us whatsoever other than keep us in a downward spiral of negativity. So important. Thank you for, for illuminating that. <laughs> That's um, well said, well said. Thank you. Uh, in, in Chapter 7, you, it's called Self-Surrender. So what, you know, surrendering to ourself means what? I would, the first word that comes off the top of my head is acceptance. Do you know, when we stop resisting, when we stop fighting, when we stop denying, when we stop pretending, and I say those words based on the way in which we address our own self, and, you know, that goes back to the authentic self, which I speak more in depth in my book, Prior to Mindfulness and Mysticism, Live True, A Mindfulness Guide to Authenticity. Self-surrender is really surrendering to who we are, who we really are. And, you know, there comes a point in one's life where, you know, it's that great Shakespeare quote, to thine own self be true, do you know? Many, many people live their lives according to other people or expectations that are placed upon them or expectations that they place on themselves, that we have to be someone that maybe we're really not, do you know? And I think what's a really important realization on the life journey is to say, who am I really? Am I living my life authentic to who I really am? Or am I living my life because I want others to accept me, love me, you know, want me, you know, all the things that maybe cause us to live inauthentically? So surrender is a very big step to take because that's like almost declaring, I'm ready. I'm ready to be who I am. I don't want to be who I'm not. 
And that should happen a lot sooner than when you're at a crisis point. That, you know, it would be great if we could take what I call in the book a spiritual pulse so that we can really gauge, you know, am I living authentically or am I living dishonestly? And I say when you live authentically, you're free. You know, you finally can just surrender and say, yes, this is who I am. And I don't have to be anyone or anything other than who I truly am. And sometimes that takes a lot of work for people that have lived inauthentically. It can be very painful for them to get to that point where they just say, I can't do this anymore. Yes. I, you know, I've had clients that do that. And when they surrender to the fight, they don't realize how much they've been fighting with themselves. Exactly. When they surrender to the fight... It clears everything. I mean, so much of what is bogging them down, uh, the pain of their past and all these things really go away. Self-acceptance. People tend to measure themselves against other people and think that if they don't measure up to a group or to the, you know, the masses, then something is wrong with them. And I think it's very important that we understand that we are so unique, each of us, And it's important that we embrace that. Absolutely. And, you know, we have to really understand that we may think that people are imposing those expectations on us, but in fact, we are the ones that it's oftentimes self-imposed. Because, again, going back to thoughts, those are thoughts that we harbor. So if we're saying, oh, I have to be this way or else I won't be loved, or I have to be this way or I'll be accepted or included, are all the things that we tell ourselves. Because it's not like someone is literally saying to you, you better be this kind of person or else I'm not going to love you. I don't think people often say that to other people or, you know, imply, well, if you don't do this, you know, um, then you're not good enough. Most of our negative talk is our own. Most of what we feed our subconscious are the thoughts that we tell ourselves that are true when they're not. And we imagine out of fear that we have to keep something going, something, you know, perpetuate the lie of inauthenticity. And you start to see in a lot of people, you know, that I've worked with or perhaps you've worked with, that at the core of their being, they're just beaten down or they're tired or they're unhappy and they don't know why. You know, and and sometimes what's buried deep within them is not surrendering to who they really are so that they can feel free and liberated and no longer have to live the lie. It's, you know, the benefits of it are so great. You have nothing to lose. You have only to gain your most authentic, individual, special self to emerge. And then you can live from that place. And it's just so much more liberating. Yes. So, and this is directly, I mean, I know everything is related to mindfulness, but this is really directly related to it because if we, we first have to be mindful of what our thoughts are, of what we're saying to ourselves, of the ones that are not working for us in order to be able to um, embrace our authentic self because a lot of yes. those messages are from the past from from people who had nefarious agendas with us and um, tried to make us think that we were worthless 
definitely, and I, I, I go in depth in that in Says Who, because a lot of the times our beliefs, you know, have become a part of our core beliefs, meaning we've been carrying those beliefs around for a very, very, very long time. When we start to investigate, when we start to do the inquiry, and I present it to the reader in the form of seven cognitive questions to ask oneself, um, we realize that a lot of the beliefs that we hold about ourselves were because we were influenced you know, at a very young age, things were maybe told to us or projected onto us, and then we believe that about ourselves, and we carry those beliefs into adulthood. And they they can be changed at any time. We just can begin to realize that so much of what has been said to us or told to us, you say nefarious, very good word, that, you know, um, can be said by an authority figure, a parent, you know, a bully on the schoolyard. Things are said to us very young, and we are vulnerable and impressionable when we're young, and we take it on as true. And I see many, many people that carry those first beliefs about themselves that become a part of their core beliefs way into adulthood, and they keep thinking that about themselves when, in fact, that was really what was said to them very, very early on in their lives. And that book is called Says Who? One Simple Question Can Change the Way You Think Forever. Yes, very, oh. very, I think a very valuable book to really, you know, because the, the um, method itself, the Says Who method, really helps you just, you know, have a system in place to be able to address a negative or fear-based thought when it comes up. I mean, you can literally ask yourself the seven questions or any of the seven questions and boom, you are in present time with that thought you're challenging that thought you're saying wait a minute i don't you know to quote the book says who who said i have to believe this thought is true i'm thinking it i have every right to challenge it yeah yes i mean it's so interesting um that some people can they can be living their lives as really great people and have this belief that they're bad and it's against all rationale and they, they have a really hard time. It's like they say, but I'm a bad person. And I say, but are you really? Well, no, I'm not really, but I believe I am. <laughs> it's so confusing yeah. for people. Yeah, we, we all have the inner critic that's just there for different reasons. And people have an inner critic, you know, in varying ways. Some people, you know, they can occasionally call themselves an idiot or, oh, I'm so stupid or Oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm I'm this or I'm that. And then there are some people that are really abusive to themselves and tell themselves all sorts of terrible things. And you know, might ha- go out into the, their day with a smile on their face, and you'd never know that they're beating themselves up so terribly inside. And so we need to again. That's the mindful awareness of catching ourselves. You know, I say like, don't say that. Don't say, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm such an idiot. Oh, it's so typical of me, or oh, I'm the person that never da 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 da. You know, be mindful of the thoughts that we tell ourselves. You know, and then of course, as you know, there's something like called the imposter syndrome. Well, that is just unbelievable to think how many people, even famous, accomplished, successful people, think silently to themselves, oh, when some when they find out what a what a fake I am. You know, one day they're going to find out that I'm really a fraud or I'm really a fake. You know, you're, you would never even know that about somebody who on the surface appears very successful 
Do you know, these are the types of inner torturing critical voices we have to address, you know, or else they just become familiar and we accept them and they become part of our day in and day out thinking. And I say, no, you know, set yourself free of that torture. And it is torture. It really is torture. So let's switch it up. Um, The other part of your book is about mysticism, and this is something that many people really never stop to think about. So what what is mysticism, and is it for only people like Gandhi and Buddha? <laughs> Such a good question. No. And that's why I wrote it. That's why I tackled something that would be, that would seem, if you will, so unavailable or esoteric or metaphysical. I really wanted to, what, what I say is demystify mysticism. And I was drawn to it because I myself, you know, and I, and I speak in the first person of my own personal experiences, you know, going back to childhood when I would have these experiences and these feelings and these sensations, and I didn't know what they were. So I wouldn't know to call them mystical experiences, you know, and I really what I say is that we've all had those magical or mystical moments in our lives. And if we really stop and think about it, many, many people that I've presented that to or, or are reading the book will say, you know, I remember when I was a little girl or a little boy and I had this really unbelievable experience and I didn't even know what it was, but it felt like there was a presence there with me or that I had this warm and fuzzy feeling inside because I felt trusting that I was being guided by by something that I didn't know what it was. You know, there's so many stories that people can say about their own personal mystical experiences, if you will. And what I realized when I did research about mysticism and, you know, going into the areas of mystics themselves, mystics are really people that devote themselves to the mystical experience. They know that there is something to life that is more mysterious. They know that there is way more than just what we see on the surface. But you have to be somebody who's curious about that. You have to be someone who's unafraid to go towards those things that are very unique to you and that sometimes people maybe feel frightened by it because they feel like, oh, what's that? Or, oh, I don't know what that is. Or it's the unknown. Or it makes me feel out of control. Or it makes me feel... Like there's something going on that I can't really put into words. But, boy, it's really a great feeling. And it's fleeting, and I don't know what it is. I go into all those areas, and I say each and every one of us is a mystic in the making. Each and every one of us can have a mystical experience if we're open to it. And you say um, you have seven questions for us to ask ourselves in in this book, mindfulness and mysticism and it's um do i wish to seek the truth what is the truth i wish to seek do i wish to seek only the surface of this life can i look beyond the surface am i ready to go beyond the surface do i want to know the mystical mystical do i want to experience union with reality so these are the questions that we take to bring us into this this um place of of mysticism can we live in mysticism all the time or is it based on specific experiences that's such a good question you know 
this whole idea of can we be in a particular state all the time, I, I don't know, you know, in that I love the quote by French philosopher Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, which is, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. So what we don't want to neglect is our spirit. Our spirit is that very thing that maybe we can't really define it you know it's the what it's like the wind that that i say you know what i use the metaphor of a sailboat it's like that invisible wind that you know really um moves the sailboat along that breathes life into that sailboat it's that magical occurrence that happens you know i think that every person that's either a sailor or on a sailboat there's that wonderful kismet that happens where everything is just right everything is in aligned an alignment do you know so can we live in that state all the time i doubt it meaning that we're we're having human experiences all the time and our human experiences are oftentimes going to take us away from those wonderful, numinous, mystical moments, but have more of them in your life. You know, don't rob yourself of those moments. If anything, invite more of those moments in your life. And that's really what I'm presenting to the reader. You know, do you want to just have an ordinary life that's just sort of devoid of these more magical moments? And, you know, to really concretize it, to say a magical moment can be when we've had that feeling when we say, oh, God, that was so great, or, oh, my God, this is the best moment of my life. You know, oh, this is so fantastic. Think about how that makes us feel when we're in those moments. Sometimes it, in fact, is a mystical moment that we just know that something happens that is just so special for us that I really propose that those are, in fact, can be described as mystical moments. So let's welcome them. Let's invite them in. Let's have more of them rather than less of them. Life is difficult enough as it is. And that's really the journey that I'm taking the reader on. I'm really saying, come, let's be on this life journey, and let's invite more of those moments into our lives. It will really enrich our life so much. It will give us such special moments in our life that we can acknowledge and say, oh, wow, you know, I'm feeling so connected today. I'm feeling at one with, you know, I talk about oneness, and I talk about that the mystical experience, the divine experience, is very unique to each and every one of us. We know what that is when we're going through it. You know, for some, it's a religious experience. For some, it's a spiritual experience, you know, where you feel at one with everything. And, you know, a lot of people have felt that when they're in meditation. Not everybody's a meditator, and nor do you have to be a meditator. I'm just saying be open, be available, trust, and don't fear it. Don't fear what could come into your life and take you into these beautiful, special, exalted moments that you go, ah, that's what it is. I'm feeling so at peace. I'm feeling so connected. I'm feeling so at one with that you begin to define what the mystical experience is for you. And it's your personal odyssey. Make it yours. You know, make it what you want it to be. Mm, sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the quote, spiritual being having a human experience. And part of that human experience is that we come here with a veil over us. The veil meaning that we... Um, are not really supposed to know where we came from, you know, 
um, necessarily who we are um, at a soul level. But you talk about lifting the veil. And um, you say that the journey of awakening requires us to be good veil lifters. So the veil can be that of coming in, you know, from um, from the spiritual realm, or it can also be the false self or the um, the imposter self that mm-hmm. you know that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how do we be? What does it take to be a good veil lifter? <laughs> well, you know that expression be a good veil lifter really means to, again to dispel to remove to dismantle and it goes back to what you asked me about self-surrender surrendering it's really lifting the veils of illusion lifting the veils of expectation lifting the veils of inauthenticity it's you know we, you, you think of you know when you you go to the eye doctor and you get those eye tests and they go which is better this one or this one which is more clear this one or this one and they you know show you so many different letters that start to become more bold and vibrant it that's a great example i think of how we can see something very fuzzy and it's as if there's Vaseline on the lens. What we want to do is we want to really sharpen. We want to continue to sharpen the viewpoint, the vantage point, the lens of which we look through. And what I also call lifting the veil. So imagine that there's all these, you're wearing all these veils. And it's shrouding you from really seeing not only yourself clearly, but seeing outwardly clearly. And I, I think the ways in which we can become good veil lifters is you know, again, a mindful practice, the awareness of what doesn't feel right to us, what doesn't feel authentic to us, what what are we doing, what are we uh, perpetuating in our lives that are keeping those veils on our face? Are we keeping them on out of convenience because we don't want to look at something? Are we wearing those veils of illusion because it makes us feel safe or we're afraid to really see things for what they really are I mean, we have a lot of questions to ask ourselves you know how can i lift the veils daily you know whether it's veils of deception veils of dishonesty veils of inauthenticity you know we have our work cut out for us and being a good veil lifter think of it again like that eye test you're only going to be seeing things much more sharply much more crisply you know, don't you want to, or do you want to wear those rose-colored glasses and be in pretend land? You know, some <laughs> people feel they need to be in pretend land because it just makes life more, uh, you know, uh, less difficult for them. I say no. You know, take off those rose-colored glasses, lift the veils. So the more clearly you can see, the better and more you will be able to see. Do you know? And that's the beauty, again, of mindfulness. I say it's the gift that keeps on giving. All the things that we're talking about, Randy, are, make us a much more of an aware, awake, and a, a person who can see much more clearly. Don't we want that? Well, I certainly do, and I would think that people do. Um, but, you know, change, change can require some major, I mean, changing ourselves, lifting the veil, accepting ourselves, seeing um, through that crisp lens um, can cause a major shift in our life. It can mean that we have to change 
our career. It mean it may mean we have to change our friends. It mm-hmm. may mean that, you know, because we're looking at things from a different way. We've been mm-hmm. accepting um, less than for ourselves. Right. And yeah. now we're saying, no, I want the very best for myself. I want to live authentically and clearly. And that can be fearful. But I think that when we let go, it is so much easier. People think that when they let go, it's going to be terrifying. But when we let go, it eases so much up in our life. Do you agree? I do, and I and my version of the uh, the understanding of letting go is free falling, and I use that word throughout mindfulness and mysticism. You know, free falling is really again going back to the surrender. Free falling is you know I'm allowing myself. It's like I always think of the. Um, squirrel that's trying to get the nut out of the hole in the ground you know you can't, if your fist is clenched you're not going to be able to get anything out of that hole and you know when you release the clenched fist obviously the, the you drop the the seed or the nut you know you have to be willing to do that because you're not going to be able to get anything out with this tight restriction this clenched fist if you will so you know i use the example in mindfulness and mysticism like you know jumping out of an airplane, you know, and um, trusting that your, you know, that the the um, you're going to be you're going to be safe because you know the parachute is going to uh, protect you. You know, there's that trust, there's that given trust. But you first have to jump out of the airplane. You have to be willing <laughs> and wanting to do that. That's the scariest part: is taking right. that leap of faith, is taking that very major step which again when you bring up change change is very frightening absolutely but i love that quote by i think it's greek philosopher heraclitus the only constant in life is change change is happening whether we want it or not we can't control not changing you know yes we can get we can stay stuck in our ways and we can stay very rigid and closed off but things around us will change whether we want them to change or not and if we're not open and receptive and able to free fall, ready to embrace the changes, you know, that's where great cha- growth happens, is in the change. That's where great transformation happens, the willingness to change. And you have to be not so identified with the fear. You know, there's so much fear, like, what will change bring me? Because, again, it's going into the unknown. And what's familiar is more safe. You know, but we have to be able to be willing to take that step towards change and trust it. Have that leap of faith that the parachute will open up, uh, open up, and protect us. You know, we have to trust and we have to have faith. I agree. I so agree. You know, the leap of faith. You know, once we take it, then we realize, oh. This wasn't so hard after all, you know, exactly. but, it's, but it's that, you know, just like getting, getting your, um, you know, get, psyching yourself up and just going, okay, I'm going to just do this. And I tell people, just, just do it, just try it, see what happens, you know, exactly. just see what happens. There's a great, right. um, there's a wonderful quote that um, is, you know, cross the street and then find out why you couldn't. You know, it's like all the things that we can tell us, oh, I can't, I can't, oh, I, no, you know, oh, no, I'm afraid, I can't, or what if this happens and what if that happens? And by the way, the what ifs is 
another really important point about the practice of mindfulness. The what-ifs are about projecting into the future, which isn't here yet. And, you know, what I say in, in my book is that being present in the present moment is one of the hardest places where we can be because we're either so busy lamenting the past, which has come and gone, or we're worried about what if or could happen in the future, which isn't here yet. So, you know, you can tell yourself all sorts of excuses of why you can't take that step across the street. Cross over. And then you can be like, wow, you know, boy, I was telling myself this, this, and this. Well, I made it to the other side. And you know what? It was pretty painless. It wasn't Mm -hmm. as bad as I imagined. Exactly. So talking about change, um, in Chapter 11, you talk about the spiritual shift. And um, I've tackled this um, this topic several times on my show because we are shifting. This is a this is a major time in history, in evolution. So, how do you describe the spiritual shift that's going on? Well, you know, I do make mention of an article that I wrote. Uh, for Huffington Post way back, and it was really interesting for me to see that I wrote that article, I think, in 2013, which I think the title was, There's a Spiritual Shift Happening. Do you feel it? Well, fast forward to 2021. (laughs) There are spiritual shifts that are happening all along the life journey to varying degrees, you know. But I would say that this particular time that we're in right now is unprecedented. I feel that we are um, really at the precipice of a major spiritual awakening. Now, there may be people that are listening to this that are like going, I don't, I don't even, I don't see that. I don't even know that that's happening. That's why being aware, being present, being awake is so important because I can tell you there's a lot going on right now. And we need to be awake and aware because things are changing so exponentially. And... Um, you know, we've had two years of, of major change on the planet. You know, um, I talked about that a lot in 2019. I had a podcast for a year, and I would say this is a time of a great awakening. It's not just about a virus. It's about an opportunity to really decide who we are, how do we want to live our life, you know, how do we see these changes, how how are we interpreting the changes that are happening? You know, there's this is a great opportunity for each and every one of us to really step up and be able to become more awake human beings. I, I can tell you that. It's a, it's a very powerful time to be more conscious. It's a powerful time to be more awake. It's a powerful time to grow, to evolve. Um, you know, don't miss this opportunity is, is really what I would advise. Do you know, um, because we have had a tendency or we've had, I would say, the opportunity to be more isolated over the last couple of years, we spent an inordinate amount of time, you know, in our homes. We had to be separated from one another. A lot of things that are very, very unnatural. So as a result, people had to spend more time, whether it's by themselves or with loved ones, or with family. And, you know, you can choose to do all sorts of things with these changes. You can choose to just, you know, zone out and just, you know, uh, feed yourself all sorts of things that help you get through this time that you may find is difficult. 
And you might also look at it as a great opportunity to get to know yourself better. Do you know? I think it's a great opportunity to really get to know yourself better. And what you said, Randy, you can discover about yourself during this time. Like, you know, I've had this job for 10 years, and it took something like this for me to have more time with myself to realize it wasn't really making me happy. I really wasn't happy on that job, or I was in this relationship, and I was just kind of cruising along, and it really wasn't helping me grow, or I didn't feel that I was growing. You know, there have been a lot of realizations for people during this time because, you know, people had to work virtually. Again, people had to be at home. So they were able to look at their lives much more up close and personal, if you will. And there were a lot of realizations that people had and people are continuing to have. Yes, absolutely, I agree. It really did. Um, Stillness always makes us have to look at ourselves and uh, that could be uncomfortable for people, but this was a forced way um, where we had to be still. And we did. We did. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I say get comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, <laughs> It's like a lot of people don't mm-hmm. like to be still. They like to be busy 24-7. You know? mm-hmm. They like to be you know, constantly go, go, mm-hmm. go, do, do, do. And I say you know, we have to get more comfortable in the being, not just the doing. We have to become more comfortable with ourselves. And I know that, you know, it's not comfortable for a lot of people. That's why I say get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because the only way you're really going to get to know what your discomfort is all about is by spending time there and saying, what am I running from? Why am I running as fast as I can? Why am I avoiding looking at this? Why am I avoiding acknowledging what I'm really feeling? Why am I afraid to look at the fact that maybe I'm not really happy? And what is causing my unhappiness? Do you know, I mean, this is something that I think really is so crucially important to address because I also talk about the opioid crisis in mindfulness and mysticism, that we are far too dependent on you know, things that are helping us feel better when we're not really tapping into our own natural resources to make ourselves feel better, you know. And that's a real concern mm-hmm. because the opioid crisis is, is, uh, is on a level mm-hmm. that is just really, really frightening. Mm-hmm. And people, especially at a time when they're feeling a lot of stress and duress, they tend to, you know, do things like emotional eating or drink more or reach out for drugs. And you want to really be mindful of the fact that the reason why you're doing that is because you want to numb out or you want to anesthetize. But this goes back to the practice of mindfulness, being present with what we're feeling no matter what that is, even if it's uncomfortable. The only way we can move through, we can get to the other side of it is to move through it. Yes, yes, thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me, thank you for that. Um, let's see where I am. I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's just find, okay, <clears throat> so you talk about Sigmund Freud um, and how he had three levels of consciousness, but that there's more. So Sigmund, Sigmund Freud said that the three levels of consciousness are conscious, pre-conscious, and unconscious. But you name um, seven, okay? And this is, you say this is from a transcendental meditation perspective. There are levels of consciousness that make up the path of spiritual development. So can we just run briefly through them? Like, 
I'll say them and you t- you say what. So what is waking consciousness? Well, waking consciousness mm-hmm. is, is <clears throat> by the way, the, 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 the level of consciousness I think is most important. You know, I do list all the different types of consciousness, and I'm sure there's a lot more than I even mentioned. But... Um, Awaking consciousness is something that immediately applies to all of us, and and that is that when we're awake, going back to the awakeness or wokeness, if you will, um, that we're cognizant of our awareness while we're awake, you know, that we become much more conscious, awake, and aware human beings. And that's the practice that I think we need to spend, you know, a significant amount of time on so that we're aware of, of who we are in the moment, do you know? And that we mm-hmm. really do heighten our awareness. You know, this is what the work is about. Basically, the work, um, if you want to get to just the most fundamental um, part of the awareness factor, is to be awake and to be aware okay. in the times when we're literally awake. And I say, it's not a time to be asleep at the wheel. That's what naps and sleeping is for. <laughs> right. And the next one is sleep consciousness. So what is sleep consciousness? Well, you know, when we're sleeping, we are processing do you know it's not like we're sleeping and not everybody remembers their dreams do you know i happen to be really big on dreams and i'm you know i'm somebody who works a lot with the unconscious and the dream states and you know a lot of people just jump out of bed and they don't even retrieve a dream you know so what it tells you is that your mind is active even when you're sleeping and we are processing a lot of things in our in our dream states do you know and they're valuable. So every every level of consciousness that we are experiencing, whether we're cognizant of it, whether we're awake, whether we're sleeping, we are developing our consciousness levels. Think of them as, I say, there's like states. There's so many states. You know, there's different states in a country. Well, there's different states of consciousness. Do you know? And the wake, the, again, the waking consciousness. I after I describe all of them in the book, I emphasize how important. You know, if we start with waking consciousness, and um, with an awareness of our thoughts, feelings, and perceptions, that's a great place to start. Anything that you get after that is a bonus. Anything, you know, other states of consciousness that you achieve is, you know, it's, it's much more in-depth from there, but you really want to address the waking consciousness first and foremost. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm going to skip over this. Um, well, transcendental consciousness is uh, the state of consciousness after waking, sleeping, and dreaming. It's the wakeful, alert, and conscious of being conscious of self, right? Yes. And transcendental consciousness, <clears throat> you know, again, really defines what it means to be awake and alert and then having this really um, heightened awareness of self, meaning you're conscious of yourself. You're aware of your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, your behaviors. You become really what I call, you know, super vigilantly aware of all of you. You know, it's a really sharpened mm-hmm. awareness of, of who, who, I, who am I. I'm aware of my thoughts. I'm aware of my words. I'm aware of my actions. I'm aware of my behaviors. I'm aware of my intentions. You know, you become a very super aware human being. Okay. Um, cosmic is a state of a higher form of consciousness. So understanding that there is consciousness outside of ourselves. Right. Exactly. You know, that this is a very big universe. 
there's the consciousness of self, there's the consciousness and awareness of others, there's the consciousness of, of our environment, there's consciousness and awareness of the universe, and then, of course, let's not forget the cosmos, which is a great mystery. I mean, all you have to do is look up at the sky any nighttime when the stars are out and go, whoa, <laughs> wow, the world is vast. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's just this vast area of of just it's the mystery of life so cosmic consciousness you know is even the awareness of that just to be able to look up at the heavens and go okay you know this world this universe uh, is vast and i am a part of it and you know if you go back to the the mystical experience which is a feeling of oneness that's and I have exercises in the book to help you get connected to that feeling is wow look at this universe that I'm a part of I'm connected to all of it hmm. so cool and then um god consciousness um you know that we that there's a higher so a higher uh being a source a um, exactly you know Which that kind of thing yeah, the awareness of a higher self, whatever that means for you. You know, you can call it God, you can call it oneness, you can call it unity consciousness, a source, present, the absolute. I mean, the, the names go on and on and on that are very specific to someone's perception of what they consider to be God. I mean, not everybody's religious, so they don't really, you know, whether they're atheist, you know, or, or they don't believe in, in God as we imagine God to be, God can be, or a higher presence, if you will, can be whatever that is for you. And you don't even have to label it. It can be a feeling. That's why I talk about the invisible, you know, not just what's visible or what's been defined for us in biblical texts. You know, I, I even mentioned that in the book, like, you know, for a lot of people, God is this like sagacious old man with white hair and a white beard and a robe and a cane. You know, because <laughs> it's, it's you know, God has been depicted mythologically in that way. Well, that's not resonant for a lot of people. Yes, and and God is a and that's a punishing God that we read about in, um, you know, in in biblical texts and in religious texts. It's 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 a God that. If we're not perfect, we get punished, which never made sense to me. Right. That, and that's the, I think that's where it gets really confusing and complex and even messy in religion. Do you know? And I, I speak about that. Although I keep saying this is not a religious book, I really do take a dive into those areas because I want to transcend these constructs. That this, this, one doesn't have to describe the mystical experience in, in, in any way other than what is personal to you. If it's when you go to a place of worship and that's when you have those aha moments, praying or devoting to a particular deity or God, so be it. That's your experience. But it's not everybody's experience. And everybody should have their own unique experience to what feels cosmic or godlike or holy or divine or transcendental. That is for you to decide. Very well said. Very well said. And the last one is unity consciousness, which um, <clears throat> this is something that Dr. Irvin Laszlo speaks about um, a lot. The state of consciousness that unites us to ourselves, others, nature, or the God of our understanding. <clears throat> Basically, that we are con everything is connected to everything. Yes, 
that we are you know that and that's to me really if i were to describe my own personal understanding of what the mystical experience would be is a sense of oneness a non-separateness meaning that i feel at one with everything and everyone um cosmically universally personally you know there's just this complete you know and again for some people they can't even put it into words and for some people they've experienced in a state of meditation it's separateness that causes us the most pain and suffering separateness from ourselves separateness from others separateness from identifying with things that are you know pretty loaded and dense like religion you know i i identify with this religion you're not part of that religion so therefore i can't feel connected to you and it's separateness that really causes us i think the most problems and suffering in the world yes yes it does seem that way um we have about a minute left. I just we can run over a few minutes. I wanted just to mention the dark night of the soul because I think we hear a lot about that, and people wonder what exactly is the dark night of the soul. This is this you discuss in um, chapter nineteen. Well, you know, um, again, you know, I'm, I'm putting names to things that maybe people have you know experienced but they never gave it a name you know and then there are people that like can immediately say oh yeah dark night of the soul i've had that i know what that is you know and really what it is is it's it whatever time in your life that you've had uh, a feeling of deep hardship in your heart and soul that you really went way down into the depths, into the belly of the beast, if you will. Like you really went into a deep part of yourself that maybe caused you a lot of suffering and pain. And um, for people that have felt that, they know what I'm talking about, you know. And it can grip you and it can make you feel like it's it's a dark night of the soul that's never going to end. And going back to change, what we know is that change is constant. So even though we get gripped by tremendous darkness or pain or suffering, for a lot of people, they don't believe that there is any light in sight and that they're never going to mm-hmm. pass that, which is yeah. very, very sad because I, I do mention in the book that's often the the feeling that one can have when they get when they start to feel very hopeless and um, can even go into the depths of such hopelessness and despair that one can entertain the possibility of suicide and um, which is very very sad because a lot of people think there's no way out from this hell that they're experiencing and the only way out is to cease living and it's it, it couldn't be further from the truth and you know without you know, really acknowledging and respecting anybody's experience of pain. What I really say in the book is that you don't want to get to that point where your darkness is so all-encompassing that you, you know, fall into such deep despair that you don't think you can get out from under it. Many, 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 many people have had deep, deep despair and have gotten out from under it or, you know, rode that terrible, painful, dark night of the soul, rode it like a wave. And when they get out from the other, to the other side of it, they look back and they say that that was where their greatest growing and learning happened. Mm-hmm. Yes, I always say that the way to, <clears throat> excuse me, the way to healing is through the pain. Totally. <clears throat> and so you have it, to go through it. You do, and you know the, that's a very, very difficult time where one's thoughts can take them over to such a degree that they don't believe that 
anything is going to change what they believe is true. That goes back to being gripped by the thoughts and the very opposite of illumined thinking. That's why it's important to keep our thoughts, you know, filled with positivity. And I don't mean like, oh, let's be positive, positive, positive all the time. You can have days where you don't feel so positive, and that's okay. But be mindful of the thoughts that start to bring you down and you know, if you're not careful, there's, there can be a precipitous decline and you start to go down the rabbit hole of despair. And the next thing you know, you are really gripped by this darkness and don't feel you can get out of it. Do you know? And I'm here to tell you no matter what, you know, your despair is, no matter how dark and deep it may feel or seem, you can get out from it. You can. You just have to believe that you can. You're absolutely right. And sometimes that requires that, you know, you have a support system that helps you through that because it can be very difficult to go through that alone uh, without the encouragement that, you know, it's going to be okay. And you're not alone, even though you may feel very alone. And that's why really um, telling somebody how you feel is so important. Don't be afraid, you know. I said to someone the other day that was, you know, a little bit shy of expressing something that they were going through, and they apologized. You know, there's that apology like, oh, I'm so sorry, or, you know, I don't mean to. I don't mean about somebody just dumping their negativity. We need to know the difference between somebody who maybe is always dumping their negativity and and really doesn't do the work to change what they're feeling, and those that are really suffering and maybe the other extreme is being afraid to really share what they're going through whether they're you know ashamed of it or they're afraid to express it you know um i say it's really important to share what you're feeling especially if you're feeling deep despair or even the beginnings of despair it doesn't have to be deep so that you can have a a trusting friend or loved one that can witness you that can hold sacred space with you so that you don't feel alone because you know what we're really not alone and we are so much more alike than we are different but we keep so much to ourselves mm, wow that's a that's a powerful statement oh so well um i guess we should stop here <laughs> um i know or, we can continue going when we talk about this type of stuff I know there's so much in your book. Um, So we're talking about your book, Mindfulness and Mysticism, which is awesome. And we also talked about, says who, how one simple question can change the way you think forever and live true. These are two very important books for um, those who are listening to pick up because it's it's really – you really do take us through how to make these changes that we really do desire – and the book, you know, I have the Mindfulness and Mysticism book, and it's just so comprehensive. It, it, there's so much I, oh, I didn't have a chance to, to go through, but you have some wonderful meditations in there and uh, a lot to ponder. So thank you, Aura, for writing this book. It's, um, it's very valuable to all of us. And I oh, really appreciate you, you being my guest today. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yes, I did too. Well, have a wonderful day and um, hope to see you soon (laughs) or talk to you soon. (laughs) Okay, have a wonderful day, Aura. You too. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. 
May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.